Well, beloved, if you have your Bibles, continue in worship with me by opening up to the letter of 1 Peter, the first letter of Peter. Today we'll be continuing our study as Peter encourages and exhorts the household slaves in their behavior towards masters both just and unjust, both kind and cruel. We're going to begin reading in verse 18, and we'll be focusing primarily on verse 20 today. These are the words of the Lord. Household slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect or with all fear. Do not, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, or this finds favor, when, mindful of God, One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing, or this finds favor in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, This truly is, like all of our worship, another moment where we depend heavily on your grace. We need the Spirit to move amongst us. We need our minds to be enlightened. We need the rebellion and the hardness of our hearts to be softened. There are people in this room today that are lost. Their hearts, the Bible describes, are diamond hard. And yet there is a thing more powerful and diamonds, and that is your word. And it can pierce to the deepest reaches of who we are. And I pray this morning that it would do that. I pray that as we seek you during this preaching hours, we endeavor to continue to worship and learn more about you and learn how we ought conform our lives to Christ and to his image, that you would reveal sin, perhaps in many this morning, sin that they have tried to cover up for many years. Lord, would we repent of it, confessing it to those whom we have wronged? Would we turn from it? And Lord, might you again look on us with that pleasing smile of a father, the son in whom he delights, who's seeking and endeavoring to fear him and obey him, Lord, we thank you that it is because of Jesus that we can call you Father. That whether we're obedient or disobedient, we are your children and nothing can change that. But Lord, we want to honor you. We want to be vessels for honorable use. So create that in us this morning, during this time and in the hours to come as we continue our fellowship. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. Well, beloved, on February the 29th of 1948, that is leap year day, that's right, sometime in the mid-morning, a man named Richard Wormbrand was abducted by the secret police on his walk to preach a Sunday morning sermon. Fear began immediately to grow in his mind as he contemplated the suffering that awaited him. He had heard many stories of how the communists had treated their prisoners, Just the night before, he and his wife Sabina had received guests into their home for dinner. And among the topics of conversation was a policeman who had recently been abducted and according to one of their guests had been put through hell. And now it was Richard's turn. What had he done? Well, nothing wrong in the eyes of God. He'd served his country and the people of his parish faithfully. He had not broken any of the just laws of his land. Many of you know the story that he would go on to prison. He would suffer mightily. At times, if you've read his autobiography in many grotesque ways, and he endured this suffering for 14 years. During this time, he continued to honor Christ. And he loved the men who tortured him. And he would preach the gospel to them and his fellow inmates. He says in Tortured for Christ, 
It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this would receive a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. And so we accepted the communist terms. He thought about it like it's a bargain. Okay, if I preach, I get beaten. I accept your terms. He said it was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everybody was happy. Now, I know that we laugh and giggle at that, but it is marvelous that somebody can be in such horrendous circumstances, and yet, that's his mindset. No, this is great. That's fine. If that's what I've got to do, if that's the price I've got to pay, I'm willing to pay that price. I'll accept your terms. We might ask ourselves that question, though. How, how could anybody feel that way? How could anybody respond to such treatment in that way. Well, today's verse, we find out exactly how. People who suffer while doing good have the favor of God. People who suffer while doing good have God's charis, His grace, His added blessing of favor on their lives. Beloved, you know that we've moved from verse 18, focusing primarily on the household slaves what they were, who they were, what their job was, what rights they had, what rights they didn't have. And in verse 18, Peter communicates that the household slaves are to submit to their masters regardless of their circumstances. Our takeaway from that is that providence will lead many of us to an employer-employee relationship. We might have a boss or a manager. And our witness to them depends on our joyful and voluntary submission regardless of how they treat us insofar as we can do this and still submit to God. Of course, if a master were to ask you to do something that God would forbid, you would be right in saying no and accepting that unjust punishment. Tammy and I, um, when we were in college, we took a class together. It's a sociology class. She and I tried to remember the name of it this week. We couldn't remember. It might have been intercultural communication. When we walked into the class, we sat down and the first thing that the professor said is, in learning how to communicate in our world, we're going to communicate in terms that you all understand and accept and agree with. So, in this class, you're allowed to say whatever the blank you want. And he used a term that Tammy and I would not have been comfortable sitting in the class with. He said, I tell you this up front, because if you don't agree to these terms, you probably need to drop the class and leave right now. Because we're going to be doing a lot of talking about these sorts of words. Tammy and I got up and we left the class. We promptly dropped it. Now, I tell you this story not to say that we did right. By our consciences, we were going to honor God. We weren't going to sit in a class where this kind of thing was going on. But I do grieve that event in our lives. And I grieve it for this reason. Tammy and I were late to the class. It was our first day there, first day of class. And everybody was in their seats. They had their bags on the floor. They were ready to go. And she and I walked in late to the class. We were also the ones who got up, the only two, and left the class. That hindered our witness. We weren't where we were supposed to be, joyfully doing what we were asked to be doing, and it hurt our witness. Regardless of the circumstances, if we're not disobeying God, we're called to joyfully and voluntarily submit. And our witness depends on doing this in all the right ways. Well, in verse 19, Peter gives a reason for why these household slaves should be obedient. This is a gracious thing. This finds favor with God, he says. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. God's favor and grace is with those who, fearing Him, endure unjust suffering. Our takeaway, household slaves and anyone under authority who lives for God's righteousness and suffers has special favor from God. God gives us that charis, that grace, that strength to endure in those moments. Jesus told his disciples, don't think ahead of time what you're going to speak in those moments when you're being persecuted, in those moments when you're being asked to give an account. My spirit will be with you in those moments you will be able to endure. You remember Stephen who was given special grace to preach 
to those who were ready to stone him. And when he was being stoned, he asked the Father in heaven to forgive those who were stoning him. Where does that grace come from? It comes from God to those who are doing righteously and are suffering for it. Peter's going to refer us here not too long from now, once we get to it, to a psalm, Psalm 34, where he's going to recount this to our minds. And listen to this, church. I'll read the psalm at length, not just the section that Peter quotes. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So you want to know what it is to fear the Lord? Here it is. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. In those moments when we are doing right, there are those who are turned against us in evil and wickedness. God opposes them and sees us and gives grace. When the righteous cry for help, the psalmist says, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. And that means that all of those 14 years that Richard cried out in prison to the Lord, the Lord helped him to deliver him from those troubles. Finally, the psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. Well, today, Peter continues his exhortation for why we should bear up under suffering. But this one's a qualification. This one's a clarification. He's going to make something explicit that was implicit in what he said in verse 19. And that's that God's favor in these moments is conditional. God's favor towards us in these moments is conditional. You do this, you get no favor. You do this and you suffer for it, you get no favor from God. But doing this, suffering for it and enduring, God pours out His favor. God pours out His favor. Beloved, to walk through this verse, I want to do a little bit of a comparison and contrast. I want to look at some things that are similar of the two different types of people that are described in this verse. One man who sins, one man who doesn't. But let's look at what's similar about these two. We'll start there. Suffering may come regardless of how you act. Look at this. In verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What do we know? Both people are suffering. Both people experience a beating. Both people are receiving a punishment. One is receiving what's considered here in the text a just punishment, a just reward. The other one's receiving an unjust punishment. But they're both being beaten. Both have this in common. You might hear people say things like, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And yes, it is theologically accurate to respond by saying, where are the good people, right? There's no one that's good, not even one. That is theologically true, but it doesn't answer the question of the heart. In those moments when somebody has done nothing wrong to deserve this beating, why are they suffering for it? And beloved, we live in a world today that has turned its back on God and eliminated in the mind this idea that there is going to be a day of reckoning. There is going to be a day of cosmic justice. There is going to be a day when people will have to give an account for even a foolish or careless word that they speak. And all things will be made right in that day. Even if in this life that person does righteous and good deeds towards the Lord and receives only wicked things in return, there will be a day when all of those wrongs are made right. And we can rest our hope there that this will all be made well on the last day. But I want you to notice something. In your ESV and your NASB and maybe your KJV, 
a pronoun is added in your verse. Now the translators here are trying to see what it is that Peter's referring to. And so they've added a pronoun that's not in the Greek text. Don't be alarmed, but I want to make note of it. In verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, your ESV says, for it. When you do good and suffer for it. Now what the ESV translators are seeing here is a correlation. The first man was beaten and he did bad things. So he got a beating for it. For what? For the bad things that he did. Now the second man, he does good things. And he suffers for it. For what? The good things that he did. Now, is Peter implying that here? Yes, certainly so. You could do something good. This household slave could do something good for his master. And that good deed angered the master and he was beaten for it. Certainly Peter is referring to that here. But I want to broaden the scope a little bit. I want to read it the way that it says in the Greek. And the Christian Standard Bible has a good rendering of this. It says, but when you do what is good and suffer. When you do what is good and suffer. What could Peter also be including here? Not just when you suffer for the righteous deed that you did, but you're doing good in your life, you're acting in righteousness, and suffering comes for no reason. It seems completely arbitrary. The master comes into his home. The slave has gotten everything clean. Everything looks perfect. The dinner's made. He's standing at the ready. But you know what? The master's had a hard day. And I'm tired of this and I'm going to take it out on somebody. So that guy. It was not for any righteous deed that he did. It's just some wicked sin in this master's heart that he decides to take it out for no reason on this slave. And could that happen in Roman times? Absolutely it could. This slave had no recourse. He couldn't go to the magistrates and say, hey, he beat me up for no reason. He, he beat me up because I did a good deed. Or he beat me up. I don't even know why. He was just angry that day. They had no recourse. So what is Peter saying? In those moments, God is mindful of you. In those moments, God is mindful of you. There's not a direct correlation from right behavior to suffering. It could be completely arbitrary. We don't know why. Notice secondly this. Suffering isn't always the result of our sin. Now, suffering may not be the result of your sin. The question might come, well, won't we suffer for sin? Of course we will. That's exactly what this verse is saying. The first guy did wrong. By the way, the word is hamartia. He sinned. It wasn't that he burnt the master's toast, okay? He talked back. He was rebellious. He did something to deserve or earn this beating in that day. He did something wrong. He sinned and he was beaten for it. So do we suffer for our sin? Yes, absolutely. If you are pulled over for speeding and reckless driving and God convicts you in the driver's seat, you did wrong. That's why you're getting pulled over. You repent to God and I'm sorry, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. The police officer is still going to come to your window. He's still going to write you a ticket and you still have to pay that fine. You still suffer for your sin even though there was reconciliation between you and God. What about somebody who's been a smoker all of their life? Maybe a chain smoker. They might repent coming to Christ seeing this is wrong. I'm not to be addicted to any substance. And yet they may still have to deal with the long-term side effects of their sin. What about someone who was involved in sodomy and they converted to Christ? They may have to live with the consequences of their sin. Live with an STD for the rest of their life. Know this about your sin, beloved. It will make you miserable. And I want to ask you this, church. What has your sin really gotten you this week? I mean, honestly. What wages and reward has your sin gotten you? The lies that you've been telling, the truth that you've been holding back from others, the things that you've been eating or drinking, knowing that, before God or in agreement with a spouse or other covenant members, you should not be doing this. The things that you've been looking at, the things that you've been thinking about in your mind, really, at the end of the day, what has your sin earned you this week that's worth holding on to? Oh, I've got this, Chris. 
This thing that I did this week, and I got this from it, and I'm glad. I paid the price, and I'm glad. Beloved, we all know sin is worthless. It seems so tempting in the moment, but it is worthless. It gains us nothing. We will suffer eternally for it. God knows every sin that you've done, even the secret ones hidden in your heart. And nobody will ever get away with even the least sin. But just because you suffer in this life does not mean it is the result of sin. Both of these people are beaten. One sinned, but one didn't. Now, last week I mentioned that there's a very unhelpful question to ask in times of suffering, and that is the question, why? God, why? Why am I suffering? Now, there are some who counsel that the people of God should not even ask the question, why? Don't even ask it. Satan might tempt you to think thoughts about yourself. You get introspective. Now, I I hear what they're guarding against, right? I don't mind if you look to God in prayer and say, Lord, I want a clean heart. Would you create that in me? Would you reveal in me if there's anything unpleasing to you? Because I want to walk in righteousness towards you. But you speak those words to God and then move on. Let God motivate you through conviction if he chooses to bring it. What we're trying to avoid is getting lost in this cycle of thinking of yourself in terms of condemnation. That's what the devil brings. He wants to bring into your life, when you ask why, oh, I know, it's because God hates you. It's because there's no love in heaven for you. It's because you've never really followed Christ. It's because you are a God hater. It's because you're lying to all of your friends. And it's over and over again, this condemnation. What do you know about condemnation? It's vague. It leads to inaction, immobility. Oh, I don't know, but I feel really bad about myself. But I don't really know what. Beloved, we need to throw away that condemnation. There is, therefore, now, for those in Christ, no condemnation. There's none. Don't let that motivate you. That's not who you are anymore. Jesus doesn't motivate us through condemnation. He put that away. But He does motivate us through conviction. Conviction is specific. When you broke that law, when you spoke that way to her, when you disobeyed like this, that was wrong. And you need to repent to him or her or me or all of the above. And you need to move on. It leads you to action. It produces hope in you. That's what conviction does. You may suffer in this life. And it's not necessarily because you sinned. You ask God for a clean heart. If he brings conviction, you repent and you move on. What else is similar between these two? What else is compared between these two? Notice that both of them have to endure the punishment, the suffering. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? You see Peter put some emphasis on that? Oh, So you sinned, you're beaten for it, you endured. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in sight of God. Both the rebellious slave and the righteous slave endures the suffering. When suffering comes, God does expect us to trust Him, cling to Him, and endure the suffering, regardless of what it is. It could be a natural disaster, illness, or even the result of our sin. But... Notice what I I think Peter's trying to press here a little bit. You don't get extra credit for enduring the suffering that you earned because you did wrong. Okay? Let me give you an example of what I mean. Give you a comparison to child training. Um, When Tammy and I have to bring a child in for discipline, what we ask is that when the child is receiving discipline, they lay still. Okay? Why? Because... You earned this, buckaroo, okay? You did wrong. You sinned against mom. You sinned against dad. You broke God's law. We explain all these things to them, and then we ask them to lay still. There's no screaming or rolling around on the floor, okay? There's no trying to raise up or dodge the blow or anything like that. 
God calls us, beloved, to spank our disobedient children. Okay? He does. And if you don't like that, you need to repent. You need to repent. And if you have children, you need to spank them. And you need to spank them in love. But the child who has given for his wages the sin and is receiving that punishment needs to accept it. Hey, this is what I bargained for. I did wrong. Mom and dad told me what the rules are. I broke them. I'm going to lay in the floor and I'm going to receive the punishment. And I'm not going to scream or I'm not going to tell them that they're wrong. Or I'm not going to have an angry look on my face when I get up. I'm going to fully submit. When my child does that, I'm thankful that they endured the spanking, but they don't get extra credit for it, okay? They don't get extra, good job, all right, you endured. No, that's what you should have done. You absolutely should take it. You work for sin, here's your reward, let me give it. It's the way that it is. If you are in Christ and you sin and you're punished for it, you get what you deserve. There is no added benefit to your punishment other than the discipline. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. He reproves us because we sin. God, why? Well, conviction. You did wrong. You're going to be punished for it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and just chastises every son whom he receives. Listen to this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Why are we enduring? Because my father wants me to look more like Jesus. And beloved, that ought to be such a wonderful thing. When we sin and we are broken over it, and we hate our sin inside, and it causes side effects in our lives that feel like suffering, we ought to rejoice. My father loves me. He is pursuing me. He will not stop until I look like his son. That is what we want. We want to look just like Christ. Well, there's no point under the discipline of the Lord that you should let, and this is what I want to encourage you to guard against, beloved, a little bit of pride rise up in your heart. You get kind of smug and you say, yeah, I made it through that discipline, all right. Did a pretty good job. I'm kind of proud of myself. This is of the flesh, and it is a continued sin against God. It is a sign to a loving father that he's not done disciplining you yet. If my child gets up and they're like, well, made it through that okay. Well, it doesn't look like I got all the way there. Buddy, let's lay back down and let's start again. Right? You need to be broken over your sin. And if there's any tendency in you to rise up, get a little prideful, your heart is getting hard again. And God's saying, okay, we're not done. I wonder if there's a man here who this week sinned against his wife. Maybe it was something mild. Maybe it was something severe. Let's say, men, that your wife addressed you about this. And maybe she wasn't exactly fair in the way she communicated it to you from your perspective. Well, sweetheart, you always do this and you're so unfair about this. And okay, kind of exaggerated language. When we're trying to reconcile with each other, brothers and sisters, that's not the best stuff to use. We should communicate very specifically with our spouses over a situation and not use all-encompassing terms like you're always terrible, you always do this to me. That's really, really bad when you're trying to reconcile with somebody. But Men, let's say that your wife spoke to you in, in those ways about the way that you acted. But you sat and listened to her and you didn't lose your cool. You kept a level head and you didn't raise your voice to shout. Let me ask you, did you walk away from that situation feel a little bit proud of yourself? Yeah, I just sat there and listened to her. Yeah, I didn't say anything back. feel pretty good about myself. Now, this week we had a reform evangelical leader in the big Eva community say something like, you can feel ashamed of yourself if you want to. He said we shouldn't use words like should. But you can. You can feel ashamed of yourself if you want to. Now, brothers, I'm going to hear, tell you right now, if you felt that way after your wife addressed you, even in an inappropriate way, you should feel ashamed of yourself. 
Okay, you should feel ashamed that you let a little bit of pride get back at you and the Lord's looking down like, okay, discipline's not over yet. We're going to have to continue working with this one. He's not submitted yet. I'm sure there's a wife here whose husband made a decision this week and she disagreed with it. Sister, let's say that you didn't submit to him. He confronted you about your lack of submission. You patiently listened to him, all while keeping a defensive posture and a hard heart. The fact that you heard him doesn't merit any extra favor. What's worse, if you aren't really broken about this and repent to him, you might even go on and add good behavior, girl, to your list of, that's what I did this week. And what that does in the ladies' hearts is builds up this, well, I've been really good to him lately. You know, I wonder when he's going to pay me back a little bit. And all because of a sin that we're allowing to fester in our hearts. John Owen said, you better be killing sin or it'd be killing you. And when I say kill, he meant murder. You get violent with your sin. Don't tolerate even a shade of it. Puritan Thomas Brooks said, one of Satan's devices against the Christian is to paint our sin with virtue's colors. Well, that's not really sin. I was doing something good there. I endured. I listened. I didn't talk back. Right, and you should have. That was your duty. Don't get proud of yourself for that. Don't let Satan paint your sin in virtue's colors. Don't suppress your sin, beloved. Kill it. Murder it. And if you're caught with a besetting sin, open up to somebody in this body that you're close to. Open up to somebody that you can say, you know what, I'm losing to this. Over and over and over again, I cannot get past this sin. And I'm tired of it. I hate my sin and I want to open this up because I want you to hate it with me. I want you to love me, but I want you to hate my sin with me. And I want us both to fight it until it's gone. Because, beloved, here's the truth of the matter. We walk around like, oh, I'm a worm. Oh, God, I'm so unrighteous. Oh, I sin. The Holy Spirit can give you victory over sin. He can. You can fight it and you can be victorious. Through the power of God's Holy Spirit, you can be victorious over your sin. Sometimes it may require some help. Two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Get somebody in there and get some help and beat this sin. Now, how are these two people different? And you've seen the ways, as we've read this verse multiple times now. They're different, first of all, that one sinned and the other acted in righteousness. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. One person sinned, remember the word is hamartia, it was a sin, and the other person did good. The other person did good. And the other person did good to an evil master. A question might arise in your mind. I'm sure it arose in some of those household slaves' minds. Why obey and submit to an unjust master? Now, the other guy, maybe he's sinning, maybe he's enduring. Maybe you can stomach the fact that he even got a beating for what he did wrong, that he sinned. But this guy's doing good. He's honoring God. Before the Lord, he's fearful. He's mindful of him. He's doing good, and he's suffering for it. And there's something in the flesh that says, why? Why do I have to act that way? I want to fight back. I want to say, no, it's all got to be fair. To answer this question, I want to take you to, just briefly, the Sermon on the Mount. The big picture, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you're all familiar with it, Matthew 5 through 7. This is the standard of righteous behavior for the people of God. What God is telling us through Jesus is if you want to get into heaven... Your righteousness can't just match the people that you think of that are the most righteous. In that day, it would have been the Pharisees. Your righteousness has to exceed that. It's got to go beyond that. Well, wait a sec. How does it go beyond that, Jesus? 
And that kind of sounds like works righteousness too, doesn't it? Beloved, we love the solas. We love sola scriptura. We love sola fide. We love sola gratia. We love all of the solas. But don't let sola fide, by faith alone we come to Christ, ruin what Jesus is trying to press on you here. If you want to get into heaven, you're going to have to be perfect. I think all of you have been praying for my dad in the hospital. My brother and I have been visiting with him on a constant basis, trying to witness to him, trying to share Christ with him. And the other day, he and I got into a conversation um, where he said, Hey, um, son, you know, somebody said that I was a, I was a bad dude. And I said, No, dad, I, that's not what I heard. I actually heard that this gentleman said that you were a good guy. But dad, the problem is bad people and good people don't go to heaven. Bad people and good people don't go to heaven. The only people that go to heaven are perfect people. Okay? Now think about that for a minute. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate in the Sermon on the Mount. The only people that go to heaven are those that act with perfection. Now wait a sec. How am I ever supposed to get there? Good. Then you're where you need to be with the Sermon on the Mount. What's the first thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm undone. If I've got to be perfect, there's no hope. Good. You're exactly where he wants you to be. Because in that moment where you say, where am I going to find perfection? You look to the cross, you're looking at him. You look to the cross, you're looking at him. Where are you going to find perfection that can be given to you to where you can get into heaven? It's the Son of God. Crucified. Risen for us. In that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus answers the question, how or why should a household slave obey the unjust master? He says, and I believe that Peter had to have this passage in mind when he wrote this. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See, that's our natural tendency. And the law of God communicated that. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For, interesting, listen to this. Jesus says, He makes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends His reign on the just and the unjust. Now you think of sunshine, you think of rosy, happy, aw. He gives sun to both good folks and evil folks. And the rain, you know, we think of the rain coming down, it's like, oh, kind of a bummer, it's raining today, right? It's, well, he, bad things happen to both good people and bad people. That's not what Jesus is communicating here. Remember, they live in an agricultural setting. When the rain comes down in the Middle Eastern desert, you're pretty excited. What's he saying? He's saying God gives both sun and the necessary rain to who? Both good and bad people. He does it to both the righteous and the wicked. How are you supposed to be perfect? One thing you can do is start acting like your father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How does Richard Wormband respond to his guards who are trying to brainwash him into thinking he's somebody he's not and are beating him for hours on end, at one point having him tied upside down between his wrists and his ankles, hitting the bottom of his feet until the bottom of his feet came off. And at the end of it, when he's been through so much pain and so much mental torment, and they say to him, do you have anything to say to us? Hoping that he'll say, yes, my name is whatever this name that they gave him to say, and now they've convinced he's brainwashed. But he always responded, yes, I do have something to say to you. I forgive you. Where does that perfection come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit of God. 
in the man of God who's trusted Christ alone, who said, I'm not perfect, I'm undone, I need Jesus, puts all of his hope in Jesus. And then in these moments of suffering, God's pouring himself out. He's helping the man who's suffering. He's helping the man who's done righteous. He's done nothing to deserve this. But God's saying, here, I'm giving it to you. What you need in that hour, it's yours. And beloved, that is a blessed hope. That is a blessed hope for us who know that maybe in the days to come, we might be called upon to suffer. Can I ask you a question? Before you came to Christ, what did you do with every breath that God graciously gave you? You took it into your lungs, your lungs put it through your blood, and your blood turned it into life for your body. You kept going with every breath that God gave you. And what does God's word communicate to us? That every moment of life outside of Christ, we turned back in rebellion towards him. God's giving you breath so you can stay alive and continue hating him. Now think about that for a minute. Before your conversion, God sent sun, rain on farmlands that would produce food that he knew you would eat. You'd continue living in sin and rebellion towards him. Remember Augustine's four states of man that we talked about several months ago. Outside of Christ, after the fall of Adam and Eve, it was not possible for us not to sin. Everything that we did was in rebellion to God. In a time in your life when you were always motivated by sin and God was lavishing you with kindness, air, food, drink, clothing, shelter, family, finances, some kind of education, a marriage, romance and intimacy, even luxury of Western life. And all you did was turn it back in hatred towards him. Maybe you're convicted right now that you still hate God. Or maybe you're convicted that this is the first time you've realized I am a God hater. You've never been reconciled to the God that's blessed you so. Richard Wormbrand said, There are two kinds of Christians. There are those who believe in Christ alone. And there are those who just as sincerely believe that they believe. I was one of those for years. I believed that I believed in God. But I did not enter through the door. And that is Christ. That's it. There's one door to get in the sheep pen, and it's Jesus alone. There's no other answer. No good works, no good deeds, no righteousness, nothing. It's Jesus or nothing. People who don't know Christ, they talk this way. They say, you know, I've done a lot of good things. I've gone to church. I've walked the aisle. I've been baptized. I did the altar call thing. I prayed the prayer. Stop talking about what you did. People who are saved don't care what they did. The only thing that matters is what Jesus did. That's it. Beloved, this is the gospel. What Jesus did was everything that we needed. Jeremy prayed it in his prayer. The righteousness that we needed, he provided. The death that we should die, he stepped in for us. Amen. That's the good news. And all who believe in him, who repent of their sins, even this moment today, can enter in through that one door, Jesus Christ, and they can be saved. Well, lastly, and this is really what this passage is all about, beloved. It's Peter's exhortation for these believing slaves to bear up under this unjust treatment and still continue doing righteousness before God because God's going to pour Himself out in favor towards you. For this finds favor... With God. Suffering and enduring for righteousness brings God's favor. Many of you are familiar with Pastor James Coates of Grace Life Church in Alberta, Canada, and his arrest on February 16th of this year. Like Richard Wormbrand, Pastor Coates did nothing wrong. He just insisted on keeping his church doors open since the state doesn't decide when the church meets. Jesus does. 
He was held in jail for about a month and a half, and then he was released. And on April 7th, the Alberta police put a barricade around the church's parking lot to keep the whole church from meeting, forcing Pastor Coates and his parishioners to meet in the underground. Recently, the passage of Bill C-4 in Canada, we mentioned this in Slack this week, which bans all speech that would affirm and uphold God's standard for human sexuality, male and female, Pastor Coates and many other brothers and sisters in Christ have called out to the church to stand with them and support them in resisting this tyranny. And many of you may have seen that our church is planning on doing this on the day that all of the churches who are participating will be preaching about God's plan for human sexuality. That's on January the 16th. But it is no secret, beloved, that unless the Lord returns, the persecution against James Coates is going to make its way further south. It's going to make its way here. We might have to suffer. Maybe Jeremy, maybe myself, maybe some of you in your own jobs, in your own employment, in your own struggle to provide for your families. But you're faced with a question. Do I serve Christ or do I serve something else? This is where this verse can bring such encouragement to your soul. Don't stop doing righteousness. Don't stop fearing God. Don't stop walking in a way that's pleasing to Him. Because His favor is with those who do so. And He'll pour out His grace on them. God is in control, beloved. He is growing His people in just the right ways. Why did James Coates have to go through what he went through? Same reason, reason Richard Wormbrand had to go through what he went through. And all the pastors and missionary biographies and all the stories that you've heard. Because God is a loving father and he knows how to conform his children to the image of his son. What he brings is good for us. It may be hard to understand. We may not like it at the time. But it is good. We can trust our heavenly father in moments like this. The Proverbs 31 woman laughs at the times to come. Ladies, I know it's tempting in these moments for girls to want to be fearful of what's to come and say, I don't like the thought of all of this suffering. What if my husband has to suffer? What if I suffer? What if we lose our kids? What if, what if? If our God can look down from heaven and laugh at the way that the people are rebelling against His Christ, His people and girls... Sisters, you too can look at the times to come and you can laugh at it. You can't take anything away from me. You take my husband. You take my children. Sabina told Richard when she said, I want you to get up there on that public stand where they are shaming the face of Christ and I want you to wipe all this spit off of Christ's face. Richard responded to her and said, you know if I do that, that I'll go to jail and I'd probably never see you again. And she said, I'd rather not have a husband for a, or a coward for a husband. She's laughing at the times to come. Richard again. There was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everybody danced. A deaf man who could not hear the music considered them all insane. Those who are with Jesus in suffering hear this music to which other men are deaf. They dance and do not care if they are considered insane. That's the grace that God's talking about, that He's pouring out on us. When we have to go through these times providentially of suffering, doesn't mean we can't flee, doesn't mean we can't try and get away from it if we can. But when the choice is Christ or disobedience and we choose Christ and we suffer for it, God is there with us. No fear. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the following verse points us to why we're going to suffer. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. Why do we think that we're going to get out of looking like Jesus? How many people in the Christian life will suffer for righteousness? Paul says, all of them. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. One way or another, you can't get away from it. Okay, so if the terms of this life are, I do good and I suffer for it, I accept your terms. I, I accept your terms. I agree. 
One last Wormbrand quote. Persecution has always produced a better Christian, a witnessing Christian, a soul-winning Christian. Communist persecution has backfired and produced serious, dedicated Christians such as are rarely seen in free lands. These people cannot understand, the people in free lands, cannot understand how anyone can be a Christian and not want to win every soul they meet. What is Jesus doing through what we're experiencing in our day, through what they were experiencing, these household slaves, what is he doing? He's building his church. He's building his church. No need to resist it. Bring it on. I accept your terms. I accept your terms. God, if this is the game, I'm in. I'm in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the suffering that you sovereignly allow in our lives. Though it is hard, though we must endure, when we reach Jordan's shores, we will look back and see that it was so light and momentary. When the weight of heaven is very real to us, and when we see our glorious Savior, every tear will get wiped away from our eyes. Your word says you keep them in a bottle. That means you remember them. But Lord, we won't have to remember them. They'll be gone forever. All those tears will be old tales. Lord, would you strengthen us in the days to come as suffering seems to be approaching step by step, as persecution against your church worldwide seems to be on the rise. Lord, may we be the kind of fearless Christian who says, okay, I was brought into the world for such a time as this. Father, I accept your terms. And I will do righteously and I will suffer for it. And then, because of Christ alone and his righteousness, I will stand before you one day blameless. Father, we thank you for this. So please encourage our hearts as we turn now towards our fellowship meal and our time together. Let our conversation bring us again and again to Jesus, our Savior, whom we so long to be like. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.